Yeah, I'm going to have a seat, church. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome to New Vintage. If you're here, welcome to New Vintage. Happy Sunday to everybody. We're going to be uh, in Ruth chapters 3 and 4 today. We're wrapping up our series on Ruth, so go ahead and get your Bibles uh, and Bible apps ready to roll. Um, as it turns out, I didn't win the Powerball um, last week. Uh, one guy picks up $2 billion, uh, and, and you th- I mean, we missed it by about 90 miles, guys, uh, in, in one tank of gas. So he can now fill his tank at the gas station he was at uh, with that, those $2 billion. We've get, we passed 8 billion people in the world this week. 8 billion people in the world. And I want you to think about how incredible it is that God knows each of them. And how breathtaking it is that he's part of the creation of each of them. And that he knows what's going on in their lives, knows every hair on our heads. And even the people who don't believe in him, he's still got his eye on them and reaching out to them and trying to, to seek their restoration and redemption. Um, Ruth is, is, this part of Ruth is always the part that sometimes people get a little upset with me, actually, when I preach it. Um, because it's one of those stories where uh, you don't get taught this part of Ruth in Sunday school. So you never knew it was in there. And it kind of blindsides you uh, as one of those things. It's kind of like a, maybe when you're, you have kids for the first time and you think they're old enough. So you're like, hey, kids, let's sit down and let's watch um, Vacation together, the movie with Chevy Chase. And you kind of forget everything that's in the movie because in your mind, it's like you know, kind of a, a G-rated movie in your mind as you remember it. But then you sit down and you're like, whoa, I forgot that was in there. And you kind of keep, you have to kind of, Keep the remote control at the ready, no matter what you do. One of my earth-shattering experiences happened with my, my dad. It was, I was about nine years old. And he says, Tim, um, how'd you like to go to the batting cages tonight? Which was not that weird, except for the fact that the batting cages cost money. And my dad did not, was not fond of just spending money in a leisure way. So he normally it would be, hey, let me go throw you some balls. That's free. It wouldn't be, hey, let's go to batting cages. So I kind of was like, all right, it's just like Tuesday night. It's not, a, it's not my birthday. It's not Christmas. It's, it's just Tuesday. Man, sure. Why not? Let's go. So we go. I take my hacks in the batting cage, and he lets me go for a while. And then afterwards, he goes, hey, let's go get some pie. And I was like, who's this man? And what, what, is, what is up here? I smell mischief in the air. We get there, and I order a big old slice of lemon meringue pie, and I uh, hot chocolate, I think, or something like that. And eventually he leans across the table and he goes, son, let me ask you something. Do you know how babies are made? Yes, I do. I know all about it, dad. In fact, no need to bring it up or talk about it. Check, please, is what I'm thinking. I want to get out of there before this thing heads south. Uh, and he goes, well, son, I goes, are you sure? I go, yeah, dad, I'm sure. I'm 100% certain. I know. I know. Just no need, we don't need to go there, okay? And he says, well, why don't you tell me what you think, how you think they're made? So I said, all right, fine. I said, all right. So when a man and a woman love each other and they get married, he kisses her. And his spit goes down her throat into her stomach. And after a while, she goes to the bathroom, and out comes a child, is what I tell him. And he looks across the table at me and says, 
not exactly, son. And then he sits down, <laughs> and he describes it to me. Then, you know, what you have at restaurants are napkins, unfortunately. And, and as I recall, he actually started to try and draw pictures and everything. And I was like, oh, no. But he tells me what it's like. And I just thought all I left there going was, that's horrible. That's disgusting. Who wants that? Like, like why would anybody do that? You know, and of course, that's how the nine-year-old brain works, right? Uh, you, you think, oh, that's, that's terrible. It's awful. Then you get, you get older, and then all of a sudden, your, your grid changes. You become a big fan, eventually, of the same thing. And you're like, okay, I'm coming to Ruth now, and I'm going to tell you some things that might disappoint you. And then you might be shocked as in there, all right? But one of the things that I think makes the Bible trustworthy is the fact that it doesn't pass over those stories. That, that when, if it was really just a hagiography, if it was really just a big uh, batch of fairy tales, then they wouldn't put this one in there. They would have just kind of let the thing go. Um, you know, you wouldn't read David and Bathsheba. You wouldn't read about Moses killing the Egyptian. You wouldn't read about a lot of the sin and the gunk that goes on in there. And what Ruth does here, I'm not sure, should be viewed as a sin because... Um, it's, it's uh, something she kind of does on orders from her mother-in-law, and, and Boaz seems to hold her up, and Ruth certainly does by the end, as the noble woman. In fact, I may have mentioned this in, in the first uh, sermon, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, not the Christian Bible that we carry around, but the Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right uh, before Proverbs 30, or uh, right after Proverbs 31. So you have the book of Proverbs, you have the, the, the Proverbs 31 about the noble woman, the whole chapter, noble woman who can find Okay, well, today, Boaz will refer to her in the midst of all of this as a noble woman. And it comes right after, and the reason is they see, the Hebrews see her as an embodiment of the noble woman. Having said that, having said that, uh, this story of trust in God's provision and trust in uh, where God is when we are at our lowest and can't, how far can we go in trusting God's provision really comes home. You may remember, if you weren't here, here's 60 seconds, the story of Ruth so far. Because of a famine, a man named Elimelech and his family, they all take off and they leave Israel and they go to Moab. And while they're there, the sons pair up with some Moabite women. Uh, the sons then die, so does Elimelech. And so now you have the daughters-in-law and, and the widow, the, the, the matriarchal widow, and so the matriarch says to them, hey, listen, y'all are young and vivacious. Go make new families. I'm just going to go die somewhere else, okay? And Ruth stays with her. Orpah goes another way. So you have these two women going together, and the loyalty that Ruth shows to Naomi is breathtaking. They move back to Bethlehem, and they got to provide somehow. Naomi's probably quite a bit older, and so she says, Ruth, I need you to go glean in the fields, which meant to go pick up the scraps that were left after the, as the harvest was taking place. Stuff would fall onto the ground. It's a little bit like when somebody comes and cuts your shrubs. Uh, there's branches and stuff on the ground, and, and they would be allowed to come pick that stuff up and take it home. It was a, a social justice system that happened there in Israel. And so she would go, and whatever, um, whatever um, stuff she picked up, she was free to take. Well, a lot of times, unfortunately, when you went into those fields, bad things could happen to women in those fields. Because uh, it, was, it was very hidden, uh, and women were extremely, extremely vulnerable with no males around. But Ruth happens to, and we talked about how these holy coincidences, it just so happens the field she picks is that of a very righteous and noble man by the name of Boaz. 
He also happens to be a redeemer of hers, a kinsman redeemer. It doesn't mean like he died for her sins, that kind of redeemer. Redeemer in the economic sense. So the way the system was set up was if, if somebody died, like a male died, and there was nobody behind, a, a male relative could marry the widow and, bear have, and, and they could bear children together to keep the lineage going and so that son could provide for the future generations of the family. But it happened in a particular order, which becomes important today. So Boaz seems very fond of Ruth. He keeps packing her up with as much grain as she can take with her. He puts out an order. Anybody touches Ruth, that's going to go poorly for you. You keep your hands off Ruth. Naomi sees all of this. Naomi knows the game. She's like, I think he likes you, Ruth. And he's a redeemer of ours. So maybe we need to give him a little nudge to do what he's supposed to do, and he already wants to do. Maybe he just needs the, you know, needs a little, little shove, maybe even. Or a cross check. And if he doesn't get it, then maybe, maybe we do what we need to do to seal this deal. Here's what the text says. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, so this is Naomi speaking to Ruth. This is Ruth uh, 3, verses 1 to 5. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. And that's what Ruth does. All right, well, what's this about? What is this? Well, the plain reading of the text is that Naomi asks Ruth to take advantage of the situation by throwing herself at Boaz while he is in a vulnerable state. That's the plain reading of the text. Now, some of you are going, ah, no, it's not that. Let me just explain why I think it's undeniable. Okay. Okay, Ruth is told to bathe, put on perfume, and go to the threshing floor. So that means she's not probably going there to haul grain especially in the middle of the night. After all, why would you bathe and put on perfume? The threshing floor back in those times was a place that was well known where the prostitutes would gather after the kinds of parties that seemed to be going on that night. And so this is a place that women would go to meet up with men after the fact. She's told to wait until Boaz has had his fill of both food and drink. And in a bit, we're going to learn that Boaz comes out with a merry heart, which is a uh, uh, a biblical euphemism for drunk or tipsy, all right? Then she's told to go to him in the middle of the night and then to essentially nuzzle up to him and uncover his feet. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but if I don't force the issue a little bit, you won't believe me, so i got to force it a little bit, all right? It is in the Bible, so just, you know. Okay, regarding feet. Okay, feet is, are not feet, all right? Um, it's something else. Um... You can read Ezekiel 16, 25 later. Uh, it's very graphic there. The phrase is spread your legs. Okay? Uh, so in Hebrew, it's unequivocal. Now here it says, uh, 
uncover his feet. Deuteronomy 28.25 has the same. Um, a better translation for this passage is probably that Ruth is told to uncover his lower body. Lie down can be used innocently, but the context suggests something more. Keep in mind, Ruth is a Moabite, and as we've talked about, you remember where the Moabites come from. Lot goes to one of these parties, gets drunk, lays down, and his daughters take advantage of him. Back-to-back nights, and he's so drunk he doesn't even remember it happened. But that's how the Moabite people come into existence. And now here you have Ruth, a Moabite, doing something that is eerily uh, identical to what's going on. Now, I could go on. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I do want to, um, to say that, um, that what Ruth is being asked to do here is not, shouldn't be viewed through the lens of being really sordid or, or whatever, or even primarily sexual. What she's being told to do is to ensure that Boaz does the right thing by seducing him. She's wanting, Naomi is wanting to seal the deal, okay? But thankfully, she doesn't lie down next to Lot. She lies down next to Boaz. And what we learn and what Boaz will say to her is if, if the end is just or the end is right, then the means need to be right. That God cares about the means that we use to justify his end. Here's the encounter on the threshing room floor. Ruth 3, 6 to 13. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I'm a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So this is where the record scratches. Boaz basically says, now there's somebody ahead of me in line. I'm willing to do it, but there's somebody else ahead of me in line. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Uh, lie down until the morning. Now she does stay the night, but it's not what you think. It's uh, she stays there probably to keep her safe and so that her reputation won't be harmed. And he sends her home with a bunch of grain to take to Naomi. She always, whenever she leaves, he's, he's always packing her up with stuff for Naomi to help take care of Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz is startled. Ruth makes the proposal. But here's something I really do want us to uh, pay attention. He upholds, he helps her uphold her integrity. He labels her a worthy woman, the same phrase used in Proverbs 31. And he says, this act of kindness is greater than her first toward Naomi. What does he mean? He means the act of being willing to sacrifice herself on Naomi's behalf. And to do that again for the sake of both provision and the continuance of the family name, he thinks is a noble purpose. He's saying, yeah, but the way we're trying to get there can't happen. It can't happen that way. He is not the actual redeemer. 
He decides to step in and do the right thing by them anyways without doing a dishonorable thing by giving in to the uncovering of his feet by a woman he's obviously attracted to after a late night party. And so here the providence of God can be seen in the fact that it just so happened that she ran into Boaz's field and not Lot's. Not an unworthy guy. In that time and in that place, guys like Boaz were not found everywhere. They were rare, wealthy, noble, kind, generous, in control, it would seem, of his desires. And we, we can even tell how sketchy it was by the fact that he has to give the order to keep the, everybody keep their hands off Ruth out in his field. Even Boaz seems to know what's going on out there. It was, it was a very ugly time. But at its core, this story is about integrity, the kind that does right in God's eyes, waiting for his provision, even in times of desperation. The end doesn't justify the means. The means sometimes justifies the end, though. God, God's will needs to happen God's way or it isn't God's will. That seems to be Boaz's sermon on the threshing floor. That doesn't mean that God can't work in spite of our sin, as in the case, for instance, of Jacob stealing the birthright from Esau or something like that. Uh, but it means that in general, as you go through life, don't, if, if, you, if the money that you gave to the church you got by robbing a liquor store, don't hold your breath waiting for God to bless you. It's not how it happens. That God does care about how we do what we do, even if the end is right. Even if the, the goal is something that God wants. God wants me to win the big game, so it doesn't matter if I cheat to get there. Yes, he does. He cares. He really cares. I mean, it's really hard uh, not to compare the story of Ruth and Boaz on the threshing floor with the founding of Ruth's Omo by people in Genesis chapter 19. In both, the female actresses in the story, uh, they go to Boaz and Lot in the middle of the night after their hearts are merry in order to ensure their future. In one case, Boaz acts nobly, and the other, Lot's get, Lot gets drunk back-to-back -back nights and doesn't even realize that he lies with both daughters in subsequent nights. Now, the point here is that to throw anything at Naomi and Ruth because desperate, desperate times call for desperate measures. Isn't that what we say? We say stuff like that, desperate times call for desperate measures. And these gals are desperate. They've got nothing. In fact, they've got less than nothing. Whatever they have is running out, and everything's heading south. And so I think it's easy for us to kind of sit there and go, oh, they shouldn't have done that, because a lot of us haven't really been taken to that point of absolute, complete desperation before. But if you sit there and you go, I know that, that God wouldn't want me to do X, so I'm going to do X in order to ensure that God's will is done, okay, that, that's dangerous. And this is a story where Boaz, based on what he says, and the way that this story kind of goes forward, uh, would lead me to believe that the, the meta message of the threshing room scene is God's will is best done God's way. So uh, what makes integrity integrity, by the way, is how it responds under pressure. When, when it's hard to do the right thing. That's how you tell who's got integrity and who doesn't. Uh, a person who has virtually nothing, um, isn't a big threat to cheat on their taxes. They wouldn't have to pay any anyway. Somebody who makes billions, there are all sorts of corners they can cut, right? They can, 
you know, come up with, they can pay all the accountants in the world to come up with loopholes they can swim through, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Um, it's easy for people who uh, have really happy, wonderful marriages to lecture people who have really miserable, awful marriages about what they should do. Amen. So you have this whole, <laughs> right? So what you want to do is, is to be able to empathize without giving in to the impulse. And I, when I look at Ruth and Naomi, I kind of go, okay, would I have responded differently? Well, of course I would have. Really? Would I really have? Because I haven't been in their spot before. Boaz doesn't seem to be upset. He seems to understand. He understands that Ruth is kind of obeying orders here. Naomi ordered the code red, if you know what I'm saying. And she's the one that's kind of just doing what, what uh, she's been told to do. And he says, listen, you're at, you're, you're, uh, your loyalty to Naomi is unbelievable. So um, you're a noble woman, and I don't want to ruin that. Key question to ask in desperate times, sisters and brothers, when we take action is, why am I really doing this? Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go, you, what people will, are willing to do in order to see something that either they desire or they think God desires for them. Uh, it's very easy to trick ourselves into thinking that whatever we do is okay. Even now, it's like, uh, it's, use ministry as an example. Um, you know, God wants to see people come to know the Lord. He wants the church to grow. So therefore, you know, you avoid teaching on delicate subjects so that people, you won't run people off. And then you call it doing what God would want you to do. Uh, your marriage is really struggling. I mean, really struggling. Not like you had a few bad weeks. I mean, it's awful. It's terrible. You guys scream at each other all the time, you know, whatever. Okay, well, you know, I think God would want me to be happy. So rather than stay and work on the marriage, I'm going to take off and go with somebody I like better. Or that I'll, I'll have an easier existence. Instead of doing the hard work on this side of really trying to get it to go. And doing what Boaz does, provides for Ruth here. Sometimes integrity, sisters and brothers, happens better in community. No one is a rock all the time. Nobody. And so when people isolate themselves and they think, oh, I'm just going to live this Christian life. I don't need the church. I don't need... I don't, need, I don't need all that. I just need myself and God. It's all about my relationship to God. I would say one of the big uh, kind of fallacies in that way of looking at the world is the thought that you can live righteously by yourself. That just does not bear out over time. Uh, if you're uh, dating somebody and you guys are trying to save yourselves from marriage, you're going to do a lot better if the person you're dating is on the same page. If they're on the opposite page, that is a much harder, more difficult road to get there than if you both are swimming in the same direction because you may be in one, one situation where they're extremely weak and they would cave in, but you don't, and so you hold each other accountable. See, we understand accountability at the really practical kind of levels, but we usually use that term to, to, 
to say, okay, when somebody tries to overreach, we're going to slap their hand on something. That's not what accountability is from the Bible's perspective. It's we have this community of people we call the church. As you get married, your spouse should be in that circle leading the charge that says, and husbands, you know, it talks about us being able to present our wives blameless before the Lord. It's, it's I care about your righteousness. I care about your holiness. And I care about it because God cares about it. So if I see you struggling or trying to go a different direction or trying to, to do something that I think is going to be harmful or injure you in some way spiritually or, or you're going to wreck your life, I owe it to you to do it. And I would recommend if you do it, do it the way Boaz does it. It's gentle. It's a gentle nudge. It's not a, you know, emotional hand grenade or something. It's, a, it's, a, it's gentle, like, like you would picture Jesus restoring somebody as it happens. But sisters and brothers, we can trust God's will in times of desperation. That's what makes it trust, by the way. Integrity is sometimes a community affair. We, we sometimes have a role to play in making our highest hopes for one another come true. Living with integrity by oneself apart from the church, I would argue, is, is pretty impossible. And I don't mean general integrity, okay? Everybody thinks they live with integrity. I've never met a person yet that says, yeah, I have no integrity. I could go to every prison in this area and ask, do you have integrity? And they'd all say yes, okay? Everybody thinks they have integrity. The way you test integrity is not that the person's lived a perfect life. It's when their core beliefs are put under pressure, do they hold up? Do they hold up? We have this uh, thing that runs from our driveway. It's like a deck. It kind of runs from our driveway into the door we go into. We'll get home. Everybody will pile out of the car. Usually the girls are the first ones in there. And they go across the, the deck. And you can tell it's seen better, better days. Um, they'll go across and you, you won't, you, know, you just hear, come, 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 as they go across it. Well, when I hit the deck, you hear, you know, it's like that thing is like, whoa, there's an elephant on deck or something. It creaks under my, under my feet, and you can tell, okay, this thing is, is, is under pressure. Most of us test ourselves by when the kids walk over the deck. We never test ourselves about the real stuff. The, you know, and, and, and in the event that we cave, when we're under tremendous pressure, we often then will excuse it as well. Hey, you know, could happen to anybody or, you know, oh, yeah, I had a weak moment or, or whatever. But that's, that's the part that really tests what integrity is made of. It's Jesus in the garden when his sweat becomes like blood. That's the moment. It's not when he's going around and a few people are leaving him because he said some mean things in his sermon. It's when the sins of the world are on his shoulders and all of heaven holds its breath saying, okay, is he going to give in? Or is he going to be able to stand the test? And he does. Those are the kind of people God is trying to create, but th those are the only, that, that only happens if we're committed to not just the end, but the means too. I mean, had Ruth lied down next to Lot instead of Boaz, the situation could have ended very differently. But Ruth and Boaz together preserve righteousness in that pivotal moment. It could have gone, to Ruth's credit, it could have gone similar to Potiphar's wife and Joseph. 
He could have said, no, I'm not going to do it. She could have run out of there and said, hey, Boaz did X and Y to me or whatever and punished Boaz for turning her down. She doesn't do that. She listens to his instruction. But cover to cover, it becomes obvious that God made us for community. It was said in the Garden of Eden, it isn't good that man should be alone. In Hebrews chapter 10, it's a text we often use to talk about church attendance, and I, I understand why, but hear it in the context of what we're talking about today. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. He's saying we make each other strong. So when you stop and you, you secede from the union, so to speak, and you fly solo, you are unequivocally a weaker person. Did I say that? I'm going to say it louder for the people in the back. You're a weaker person by yourself. The Bible says that just everywhere. The more you fly solo, the weaker your plane is. And so what I see here is a, a woman who is Moabite. She's very new to the Israelite faith. She just, just showed up, just converted. Naomi, wanting to seal the deal, is, is weak, sends Ruth in on this mission. Ruth complies, goes in there, and Boaz says, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And so we then, again, as we help one another live righteously, become instruments of God's providence. He's strong at the threshing floor, Boaz is, and he's the means by which God then provides for Ruth and Naomi. He provides some righteousness at a key moment there on the threshing floor, but he also helps provide for them financially going forward. And he will res assume responsibility when he doesn't have to. As he mentions, there's a guy ahead of him in line. And it would be very easy for Boaz to just simply say, yep, there's somebody ahead of me in line. See you later. But he doesn't. He says, I will make sure that this gets taken care of. So the next day, this is awesome. Uh, Boaz, and this is kind of the, the happy ending to the, the story at large, he goes, he goes uh, hey, he grabs the guy that's the, you know, ahead of him in line, and he says, hey, let's get all the elders together and talk this through. Sits down, and he says, hey, listen, there's a woman here. Her name's uh, Naomi. She's a widow of Elimelech. You're number one in line to redeem them. Uh, and so if you'd like, you can accommodate the, um, I'm going to read this in a second. Go ahead and go back one real quick. Um, he says, go ahead, uh, he, you know, if you want a redeemer, that's great. You just have to buy the, the land of Elimelech's and it's yours. Guy says, sweet. Cha-ching. I got it. And he says, oh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, you have to take Ruth as your wife, Moabite woman. Oh. And now, now Boaz is stirring the pot and trying to make this not desirable to this guy so he'll pass. Now, again, he's not supposed to pass. It's Israelite law. He has to take it. But the guy is so self-interested, he says, well, that could endanger my whole estate, so if you're a redeemer, go ahead. He steps out of line. Boaz says, well, looky here. Here I am at the front of the line all of a sudden. And so he does it. He, he takes... Uh, first place, essentially by talking the guy that was ahead of him out of his responsibility without him really noticing that that's what was happening. 
So here's how it ends, the story of Ruth. Ruth 4, 13 to 17. Listen to this. This is breathtaking. So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. (laughs) Naomi took the baby. She got a grandbaby now. She's happy. All the grandparents said amen. And cuddled him to her breast. And she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. The who? The grandfather of David. Which means also he became the great, 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 super great grandfather of Jesus. And Ruth and Boaz lived happily ever after. And God has been doing it ever since. He's doing it now in your life, and he's doing it in my life. And so we remember that with God, it just so happens, happens a lot. We don't need to take advantage of people, circumstances, or anything in case God doesn't provide. He will. That's what this story teaches. He will provide. He's going to provide, and as he does, we can just stand back and watch in amazement as all these things just so happen as they go forward. So keep your eyes open, sisters and brothers, for what God is doing in your life. If you feel like you're out there in desperation, reach out to your sisters and brothers for help and reach out to your Heavenly Father who knows what's going on and stands ready to help. But may we remember that God is not just our king, not just our 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 Lord, but he is our provider as well. And so as we remember the story of Ruth and Boaz, we are our spiritual family. It'd be a big family photo, huh, of us and going all the way back to there. But if you're going to do one of those photo shoots here at Thanksgiving, picture your spiritual family around you, not just the church here at New Vintage, but this greater cloud of witnesses to the great things that God has done through the years. And leave it to God to take this terrible tragedy and bring from it King David and that line and fulfill his promise to David and then all the way through to the birth of the Messiah and weaving his own son's genealogy through um, the story of Ruth. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And as we do, we want to focus on uh, integrity this morning. Uh, Integrity that trusts in the provision of God If you didn't get the elements on the way in and you'd like them, just go ahead and do one of these. Put your hand in the air and we'll bring them to you. But let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus being there. And he says, Father, if if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he says, yeah, not my will but yours be done. So this morning you may know something going on in your own life or always start there and then work to the people around you or somebody around you that you can see is struggling with kind of the, the end justifies the means way of looking at things. Remember instead that 
that God, God has made his promise as a provision and his promise as a blessing for those who earnestly seek him and for those who, are, who, who obey his commands. We want to be those people. And so this morning, as we gather around the Lord's table, let's remember Jesus who obeyed him perfectly all the way unto death, even death on a cross. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this inspiring story of Ruth. We're breathtaking at how you take this story of brokenness and despair and poverty and grief and turn it into a story about righteousness and legacy and loyalty and faith. So now, Father, as we remember Jesus, who was the embodiment of all of those things, we thank you, Father, for his sacrifice. We pray, Father, that the integrity that he had when he walked this earth would be ours in Christ, and that the spirit of Jesus, the integrity-filled one, would be in our midst, and that you would keep us from lacks of trust that would cause us to compromise what we know to be true, which is that you do provide for us. We pray this now in the name of Christ. Amen.